This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, the supply chain continues to frustrate aircraft owners and shops. And the legendary Tuskegee Airmen flies west. The air car is a reality. But on the flip side, a longtime helicopter manufacturer files for bankruptcy. Also, we're going to congratulate Zara Rutherford for completing her earth rounding flight. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, I'm really excited to have her on. Jim Moore, our colleague over in the digital side, was able to talk to Martha Lunkin. Now, you remember we talked about her a couple weeks ago, but we're going to get her side of the story now. I'm excited to hear that. And I got to tell you, Martha is, she's game. She's game to talk about what happened and the lessons she's learned. And I think we'll be excited to hear more about it. Okay, cool. So the news, I want to talk about the supply chain. We haven't touched really on this on the show, I don't think. But every mainstream publication in the world really is talking about the supply chain in terms of phones and cars and everything else. But it has hit aviation as well. Aircraft owners have been so frustrated with this. I think shops have been frustrated. Manufacturers have been frustrated. It is really affecting so many different parts of aviation. That's right, Ian. So Kayla McLeod from our online department interviewed several different manufacturers of of aircraft and avionics and got to the bottom of it, you know, starting with the fact that Cub Crafters, they have that super popular line of uh, aircraft, they had an aluminum extrusion shortage, so they couldn't make the tubular framework for the Cubs, and on and on. Ian, what do you think about this? You, you're, you've you got your hand on the pulse with uh, the Ask the A&P's podcast and Mike Bush. Yeah. 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 It's funny because it just came up actually in the last recording we did. Um, it's something really that surprisingly that hasn't come up. You know, people haven't written in asking like, how do I get a tire? Right. But somebody did ask, should I reman or should I overhaul my engine? And Mike basically said, whichever's faster, because it is so bad at all of these shops, whether it be the manufacturer or the overhaul shop. And it's everything from labor issues, people getting being able to fill those open positions to, yeah, to supply chain. You know, it, it, you can hold up an entire overhaul because of a bearing or or whatever the case may be. So it's, it is everything from, like we said, tires and batteries to engines to avionics in many cases. Although you had an interesting conversation with Ivy at Cirrus about that. I did. Ivy McIver came up yesterday with the new Cirrus SR22 that we talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago. 
And she said that in their instance, you know, they're still planning for months out. And, and Cirrus is, has been the most popular GA aircraft, you know, for, for a number of years. But they had an interesting supply issue with the composite propellers. And they had a hard time getting the composite propellers. And it was interesting, Ian, because Ivy explained it to us. Like Hartzell couldn't get the propellers because the carbon fiber couldn't be made. The carbon fiber company that made the carbon fiber to supply to Hartzell couldn't get part of the bonding agent. The bonding agent couldn't be made because the initial chemical to make the bonding agent was in short supply. So you can trace it all the way back to, you know, the origination. And that's, to me, that was fascinating. I would have never thought that that would have been a problem. Yeah, right. People just sort of assume that it's at that last point in the production, but many times it can be way down that line. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that people are doing to to try and overcome this. Uh, shops are stocking some of those common consumables. They're looking for new suppliers. We even have a, a common friend who bought an engine early. Yes. Yeah. A friend of ours who flies a really cool airplane called an Epsilon. And quick shout out to Mike Felucci. Because in case you're listening, we um, we appreciate you helping out with air to airs and all. But Mike told me yesterday that he, and he has the means to, he bought another engine for his Epsilon and has it crated in, in the hangar for when he needs it. Now, we can't all afford to do that, but he didn't want to be put out for months at a time waiting on something. It's a Lycoming big six-cylinder engine. Pretty common. But anyway, so folks are doing that, and he's not the only person that is looking to do that either. Yeah, I think, like we said, it's like you you got to plan ahead these days. I mean, uh, avionics upgrades, if you, even the market, we talked about such a tight market, people look for projects, but, you know, maybe that project that you would have done in the past and bought the airplane, turned it right around, you're going to be maybe looking at months out to be able to even get into the shop to do that. So it affects all sorts of things. And a lot more planning, too, like you said, because um, and Cirrus has the same kind of a deal where they're, they stage the airplanes at different stations. So different components go on at different times. So if you're doing, a, say you're a privateer, you're doing your own gig and you're trying to rebuild an airplane, you found a great deal on a 172, you might very well need to hold up the rest of your interior work until you get that panel. You might not be able to get the avionics from Garmin because they might be feeding to the big manufacturers first and uh, and so it might hold you up maybe you wanted to put that that airplane on the line at a flight school well the students can't fly that airplane unless it's on the line you can't get it on the line until you've got it ifr certified etc so yeah yeah it, it impacts all areas david some sad news that you teased here is brigadier general uh, charles mcgee a tuskegee airman and and boy so many other things throughout his long life uh, passed on recently at 102 years old yeah, Charles McGee, he was a true American hero. He fought and flew in three different wars, and he died January 16th, and he lived nearby in Bethesda, Maryland. What was interesting, I got to meet him during his 100th birthday celebration a couple of years ago, and he flew a Cirrus Vision jet and landed the thing, and this is a quote of mine, like butter. I mean, a pilot's pilot. <laughs> he still had he it. He had huh? it. He had, you know, and he, they yeah. they learned on these Boeing Stearman, and they moved on to the P fifty one Mustang, uh, a favorite airplane of a lot of folks. Very high performance aircraft in World War II. And don't forget, these were young kids at the time. And he went on, like I said, to to be a war hero. One hundred and seventy three 
combat missions in Vietnam, 136 missions with the Tuskegee Airmen, 100 missions in the Korean War, 409 total flight missions, a, a true hero. And we have an award named after him, the Hoover Awards that AOPA helps promote and, and publish and, and invite people to. There's a, a Charles McGee Award for the person who lives up to the ideals of McGee and pays it forward for generations to come. Yeah, that's great. That's it's really fantastic. So that award will be presented this coming March. March 23rd in Washington DC. We're sorry to to learn about Charles McGee's passing. He is a true hero. He did provide a lot of uh, input to us. He helped us out a lot. He also really encouraged young people to get involved in aviation and he was a docent at the Smithsonian as well. So yeah, encouraged a lot of people to get into aviation. That's great. Great life. David, moving on to the air car. Now, we talked about this a couple of months ago. This is the Klein Vision air car out of Slovakia. And it is, believe it or not, it is now certified. Well, it's certified by the Slovak Transportation Authority. So, Ian, you and I were chatting about this ahead of time. But the company says that it the the standards are compatible with uh, EASA. Compatible with, but not... Compatible with. But not certified by, yes. And I was just wondering how many other Slovak aviation firms are there. I just don't know that many. I'm sure there are. Yeah. But this is an interesting vehicle. You know, the fact that it now is 400000 bucks. So let's get that... Let's get that off uh, off our chest right to begin with. Yeah, for a two-place, yeah, for essentially an LSA that goes on the road, yes, for a right. brand. Yep. But so the interesting thing is that, uh, for me anyway, we, we were talking a lot about uh, aviation fuel and how we could get the, you know, the lead out of that. So this is going to use a 1.6-liter BMW engine. My assumption is it's not Avgas-powered because mm-hmm. it's going to be on the road as well. Yeah. But I'm just wondering what what some of their um, data suggests, because I, I was reading here, and thank you to Flying Magazine for putting something out um, this week on it, that flight tests involved a, a full range of flight and performance maneuvers, and the vehicle can, quote, conduct takeoff and landing procedures without pilot input. What does that mean? Yeah, interesting. So maybe optionally piloted, although, of course, being an airplane, it's going to require a pilot certificate initially. So, you know, people who don't have one and who think the Jetsons dream is here, it is not yet. We might have to wait a couple of years for that with eVTOLs. One thing that's interesting that came out as part of this is it is certified. You know, the Slovak Transport Authority certified it, not EASA certified, and really important to note. They said that it came after 70 hours of testing, including 200 takeoffs and landings. And that is, I mean, that's barely a private pilot certificate. I mean, it's... (laughs) <laughs> that does not seem like much time. Yeah, right, right. Most private pilots, you're right, between 60 and 80 hours is more realistic to get your private pilot certificate. And I'm wondering about that. Now, kudos to Klein Vision and Professor um, Stephen Klein, you know, who has the vision for something like this. But, Ian, let's talk about this for a second in all seriousness. How would we use this airplane? Say I'm, um, you know, I, I'm from Georgia, and I'm on, say I'm on, uh, I'm on I-285. It goes around, uh, you know, it goes around the circumference of Atlanta, and it's like back to back in traffic, you know, jammed yes. all the time. I'm still going to need, you know, a couple hundred feet of runway to get off the ground. How am I going to do that from 285? You're not taking off in a traffic jam. Yeah, I mean, really, what it, this is is it's a really expensive uh, courtesy car. 
because, you know, it's like you go and you fly to an airport and you land and then you fold the wings and you go drive on the road somewhere. But boy, it's like, I don't know if I want it. I, I like that courtesy carters are beaters because you don't have to worry about it. So the fact that you, I would imagine how much you would worry, you worry about a nice car when you parallel park in a city. Imagine trying to parallel park your airplane somewhere. Oh, that's a good point. And if it got damaged, Ian, say you say you flew from Orlando to, I don't know, Jacksonville or something, and you had to turn around and go back. Uh, well, maybe that's not a good maybe that's not a, a a good example because that's only a couple you know a couple hundred miles. But say you were in Miami from Atlanta or Washington D.C. from I don't know Birmingham, and you know now you've got several hundred miles you know to, to go, and your airplane gets damaged in traffic on 495 around the Washington D.C. I mean, how are you gonna get it back there? Who's gonna work on it? Is the other thing. Yeah, you're stuck. I mean, you're totally stuck. It, you know, every little bit of hanger rash is grounding, and so you can imagine a little bit of bumper rash from uh, from somebody being a little too aggressive when you're parallel parking. I, it, it is. There's all sorts of things. It, it's from a technology standpoint. Okay, it's cool. Obviously, Stephen Klein believes in himself, and the company said it's official and the final confirmation of our ability to change mid-distance travel forever. So he's a true believer. Me, not so much, but it does look cool. I, I'll give it that. I say more power to him and to the Klein Air Car, and maybe it'll spawn other designs and mature that whole air car concept. But, you know, we're moving ahead to uh, battery technology and hybrid technology, so I guess we got to keep our eye down the road on what's going to eventually stick. Yeah, that's, that's a great point, David, and we'll be right back. Moving on, Ian, you have the background on this next story. It's one of the legendary helicopter manufacturers filing for bankruptcy. What's up with that? Yeah, David, I guess we're ping-ponging today between good news, bad news. This one is Enstrom Helicopter out of, boy, it's always tough to say, Menominee, Michigan, the Upper Peninsula. Been there since the late 50s. Rudy Enstrom developed the helicopter really in his garage, more or less, they produce the piston and turbine, the piston F28 and 280 and turbine 480, and they are bankrupt, I am sorry to say. And this type of, now, it's good to let our listeners know, in case they're not large, there are a couple of different types of bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. We're reporting on a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. That's liquidation. It is liquidation. And, and this is, it struck a lot of people as odd, but I went up there a couple of years ago for a visit and toured the factory, flew the helicopters and reported on what seemed to be kind of their resurgence because they had been purchased by a Chinese owner, um, CGAG. And it seemed like there was a lot of excitement among the staff. Well, essentially what happened is the company came in, they wanted, I think, more the technology and the operating knowledge than to really invest in in the helicopter and expand the the line. Oh, I see. I got gotcha. you. Like like a like a technology grab in a way. Yeah, yeah. So Dennis Martin, we talked to him, and he was the uh, director of sales and marketing. He said they never really invested in the company. Everything that they did in terms of there was a new training model that they were working on. They did some factory expansion that was all funded through debt, not through company investment. And then when it came time to pay the debt, the company said, uh, "You know what? No thanks." And they just walked away. There was no real interest in trying to restructure, trying to move on. I think they just said, oh, forget it. We're out of here. So it is really a sad ending. 
we heard a, a, a similar story from the folks at Mooney with their Chinese investment a while back. You know, that company was uh, had welcomed the investment at that time, but it really didn't pan out with them either. Now, in Mooney's case, the employees turned around, and, 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 and not necessarily all employees, but Mooney owners turned around and, and, and bought that company, bought 80% of it from the Chinese. Now, when you talked to Enstrom just the other day, did it sound like there might be any possibility for something like that? Yes. So somebody will buy the company. Dennis was saying that last year they sold, boy, I think it was of around $3 million worth of parts. They had a bunch, a couple of million slated for this year already. So definitely there is value still in the company. Whether or not they produce more helicopters, uh, we hope they will. And I think they can gear up to do that again very quickly. The problem is, there, there's there's really one big problem here, I think, and that is that Enstrom has survived the past couple of years through foreign sales, foreign sales to militaries, public flying, uh, that sort of thing. So public safety uh, abroad, militaries abroad. And Dennis was saying that's one, in, that's one reason that they ultimately went down and they ultimately had cash flow problems because he's been unable to travel because of the pandemic. So those sales have been light. But it also, when you sell to those entities, they want to know that they you're going to be around to support them. Yeah, 10 years from now, I need spare parts. I need to get so and such and such rebuilt. My There's a crack in the, in the glass in the cockpit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So going through bankruptcy like this in Chapter 7 bankruptcy, I think is not going to sit well with some of those operators. And so when it comes time to, to advance the fleet and, and maybe buy big spares packages, they're going to maybe think twice about, okay, are we looking at long-term viability here or not? Now, I think there is long-term viability. This is the first time in the company's long history that they've been completely shuttered. So I don't know. We'll see. I, I, I think they'll bounce back, but it's going to take a little while. There is definitely interest in them being, being purchased though. And will owners of Enstrom's uh, that have the helicopters now be able to get parts support or warranty work? Do you know anything about that? From the factory, nothing. Literally zero. Um, wow. Completely shuttered. They, there are service centers, and if service centers have stock, they can obviously sell that. But in terms of getting new stuff, does not exist. So it will, the folks will just have to wait until somebody purchases the company and is able to, to ramp back up again. Well, I wish them good luck with that because that's a, that's a lot of longevity out there from the late 50s until now. Mm-hmm. And it is an interesting product. And like you said, a lot of military and public safety support um, you know, units have bought those. So um, we've got to stay tuned for that. Yeah. So, hey, finishing on some, some really happy news. Zara Rutherford, we had her on the show a couple of months ago. Hopefully everybody listened to the interview. She's an incredible inspiration a young woman who has flown around the world solo in her shark, a European ultralight. Yeah, and we need to mention that she's 19 years old and became the youngest woman to circumnavigate the globe, and that just happened on January 20th. So uh, kudos to her. We did have her on the show. Uh, Thanks to Alyssa Cobb for um, talking to Zara, and I want to say that Zara was hunkered down either in Alaska. Alaska. I think it was in Alaska, right, at the time. So she had 155 days of VFR-only flying, a lot of weather delays like we just mentioned. And I want to say she was in Alaska for two or three weeks and pandemic complications and whatnot. But folks were cheering her around worldwide, Ian, and one of her staunchest supporters was the former record holder, Shasta Ways, who has also been on Hangar Talk before. 
Shasta flew around the world at age 30. She was in a Beechcraft Bonanza. Now, the Shark is a two-person aircraft. It is a cool-looking airplane. Very cool. Very cool. But as you mentioned, VFR only. So it was her and uh, one other seat and VFR weather. She had to do that all around the world. It's incredible, incredible stuff. I, there's no way I would have done that at her age. I wouldn't have had the, I don't know. I, I wouldn't have had the the organization or the drive to do it at her age, I think. You know, the planning of something like that is just daunting. I mean, I'm just getting ready to do a little fly out this weekend to from from Maryland to North Carolina. That's already like, hey, we got weather to contend with and yeah, you're spending, the timing yeah, time, yeah. and this and that and the other. But I mean, around the world, it's crazy. But kudos to her and all the support that she that she's got. And she wants to be a pilot. I mean, the thing is that this is not just a one off deal. She really wants to be an aviator, and um, she wants to let other people know that aviation is not out of reach for them. So she is a positive role model, just like Brigadier General Charles McGee was a positive role model. She is uh, being a role model for that and also for young women. So this is an important thing to get more folks involved into aviation. Yeah, great point. Congrats to her. David, our guest this week, Martha Lungan. Obviously, her story at this point is is well-known longtime pilot and and well-known examiner in the Cincinnati area, columnist for Flying Magazine, and former underbridge flyer. So she is now back, and we're going to see what she has to say about it. Thank you, Martha Lunken, for joining us uh, this afternoon, celebrating a little bit of a milestone, a private pilot certificate redo. How many years between your, your first and your second private pilot check ride, if I, if I might be uh, 60. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and it how was many... uh, March of 1962 when I got the first private license. And the 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 second was pretty recently, yes. Yeah, it was Christmas Eve of this of December twenty twenty one. So the best Christmas present ever. A lot of people are happy to hear that you're flying again. I assume no no none more than you yourself. Uh, That's tell right. me what you've been That's doing right. with it. Well, you know, during the nine months that I was in in purgatory, I have several friends at, at the airport where I keep my Cessna 180 and I would fly along as a passenger. So, you know, I maintain some degree of, of proficiency and I've, I've owned that airplane for 30, 30 years. So, you know, it's kind of like riding a bike, although a 180 can be a little uh, squirrely on hard surface. And then as December approached, I was worried I was worried to an extent about the IACRA system and going back in there and registering as a student pilot since I had all these all these type ratings and certificates. But a, a real great group down at, at Lunken uh, Flamingo Air, one of their employees is a 
whiz with IACRA, and she she helped me get through that. It did crash a couple times, but we got into it. So then I was good to go. And, you know, it's very hard to find out specific information from the FAA these days. They don't answer calls. They're not in the office, and there's nobody to ask. So we decided the best thing to do was my time all counts. My ratings are gone. My certificates and ratings are gone. But the time counts, and I have about 14,000 hours. So I took three hours in preparation for the uh, the uh, private uh, check ride and the private private practical test with uh, a wonderful guy up at Waynesville Airport, north of Cincinnati. And frankly, if you want me to be totally honest, of course, I'm I'm telling you what I'm writing about in my in my column, but you know I thought it would be rather like these guys are all way behind on giving their their observed rides. FAA inspectors are supposed to ride with their examiners at, at least once a year, I think, and they've been pretty slack about that, and especially lately. So the examiner Bob Miller told me he was due for an observed ride. And I chose Bob because he's the only tailwheel examiner in our area. Well, I gnawed on that for a while. And you, as you may know, the inspector always tells the applicant and the examiner, don't worry about me being back here. I'm just here to observe the examiner. But you also know you're going to get the, the most complete check ride in the, in, in the world. So... And, and one person watching you is watching through rather unfriendly. <laughs> I, I, I said in my article, when I was in the Indianapolis FAA office, I used to have an examiner out in Terre Haute who I dearly loved, but Herman only flunked one check ride a year. And that was when I was out there to ride with him. So anyway, we decided I would take the test in the 1967 Cessna 150. And I have a... <laughs> close to 6,000 hours instructing in Cessna 150s. I had one in my flying school. But you know, that was that was 50 years ago. So I had to do a little homework on the, the numbers and the weight and balance and all that. And then I went through the, the private pilot questions, you know, for the oral. Bob was very serious about it. He wanted to do things by the book, and I, I appreciate that. So um, Christmas Eve morning was, it wasn't ideal, but it was better than it has been. And I drove up to Waynesville, and we flew the, the check ride in that Cessna 150. And, you know, it was a joy to fly. I mean, I have to tell you, I love J3 Cubs. I love DC-3s. I love Lockheed Lodestars. And beach 18s, but and Cessna 180s. But there's something about, especially an older Cessna 150, that's that's just it's a sweet airplane. It's a fun airplane to fly. So we did do a very complete flight check and and oral, and it took the flight check took about two hours, and I got a little bit lost because he wouldn't let me use the VOR or my iPad. <laughs> but I found myself, so all was well. And then when I came back home to Lunkin, I flew with an instructor who signed me off for high performance, complex, and tailwheel. So I immediately leaped into my 180 and, and have been flying it lots ever since, joyfully. Even the tower said it's good to have you back. That's that is good stuff. I'm I'm curious on the 
remembering my own check rides, you know, the the oral examination portion can be can, can be can be lengthy. What was that like? I think we probably spent 45 minutes, you know, went over the usual stuff, light gun signals and airspace and but you know, I taught all that stuff for years. So it, it really wasn't difficult, but I did study. I brushed up on uh, on everything, and uh, I wanted to be well prepared. And I whipped out my old E6B and my plotter and laid out the course on a sectional chart, which was a good thing because as we got into the ride, he wouldn't let me use the VOR or my iPad. And the wind was blowing, so there was a pretty good correction angle. And finally, I said, you know, I think that's Hillsborough. I'm kind of not heading exactly for it, but, and it was. So then we turned around and came home. And and uh, the numbers in Assessor 150 are not difficult to learn, although these were in knots, which was kind of a, a new thing to me. But the joy of it, the good wishes of <clears throat> so many people, it was, it was a, it was a beautiful thing. I always feel like the Lord works in mysterious ways. And as as painful as this was, and it was very, very painful um, and unexpected, I connected with so many people. Now, a few of them thought I should go to jail, but the vast majority were very supportive. And I've, I've wondered about that, why that is. And, and I think, well, A, they know I love to fly. And, and B, this kind of shenanigans is something probably everybody has thought about doing at one time or another, especially people who have been around for a long time. And thirdly, we live in a really rule-bound society. I'm looking at a, at a quote I cut out from somebody's email, and it says, Keep shining your joy and smiling face. You're a light in a rule-heavy world. And I think that idea was, was something that uh, impacted on people. Certainly what I did was illegal, and I knew it. It was not dangerous. Did it come up at all during the, the examination? The check ride? Well, not directly, but as we took off and initially headed on course, my first checkpoint was this big, beautiful bridge, the Jeremiah Morrow Bridge, <laughs> which I knew well. <laughs> uh, yeah. We went over it. We went over it. <laughs> <laughs> was that the first, the incident, the previous incident where you went under it? Was that the first time you'd ever done that? Uh, I think I have to take the fifth there. Okay, fair, fair enough. But you said you were surprised that the that the FAA responded, went all the way to revocation, and I assume was the surprise uh, it, where they had options available to them under the regs, you know, suspension, for example. Yeah, and I think the the explanation for that was when I got a call a week later from the local FAA office, and I don't know, I know very few people in there anymore. And the first question was, did you fly your airplane under the bridge, the Morrow Bridge? And I said, yes, I did. And the second question was, did you turn your transponder off? And I said, no, I did not. And I received a letter of investigation about two weeks later, a formal LOI, and meanwhile, I had called Kathy Yotis uh, in Washington, who you guys know well, John and Kathy, and, and put her to work for me. 
But the interesting thing was that a year went by with no word from the FAA, nothing. And I even had a tiny little crucifix in my mailbox. <laughs> so when I would go out in the morning and dip my hand in it, you know, I'd think, dear Lord, whatever you want, but sure would be nice. Well, after six months in FAA violation, if it's not acted upon, usually disappears, but there's usually an off the hook letter that's sent out. But in my case, I received nothing and Kathy couldn't quite understand it. And then six months later, almost to a year after the incident, I received a formal emergency letter of revocation saying, you know, you are obviously unsafe, uh, impure, unclean, and all kinds of things. So, you know, the question is, if I'm that unsafe, why did they let me fly for a year? And I have no idea why, but I did. I did fly for that year. And we talked it over. And it seems that they insist on believing that I intentionally turned off my transponder. I did not. I did not turn it off. And I took it back to a radio shop, which had installed, I think it's the one that installed it. And they found it was loose in the mount. It was intermittent. And later in that ride, when I tried to get, on that day of the bridge, when I tried to get an instrument approach back into Lincoln, CVG approach control couldn't, couldn't pick up the transponder. So, but Kathy said, she said, we can go to battle on this with the NTSB. It's going to cost probably north of $25,000. And then, as you know, that doesn't end there. The FAA can appeal it to the full board. And um, it was not worth that. So, you know, so I, I um, immediately began studying for the private written, and I took that. And then I began studying for the instrument written. Both They're all good for two years. And I want to tell you, the instrument written, well, even the private written, is not your mother's flight test or exams. They are considerably more complex and difficult. But, you know, it was good mind work and uh it, it, it kept me off the streets unfortunately kept me out of the airplane too yeah and then that and and that was uh you you've expressed how difficult that was after so many years of flying to be unable to fly yeah. the you know manipulate the controls yourself and the whole thing oh it was it was uh yeah it was painful so tell me about the yeah, so you mentioned most of the most of what you've heard from folks has been supportive. Can you give me a sense of how many responses you received directly? Are we talking about dozens or hundreds or thousands or what? Hundreds, many of which went directly to the magazine. And I would say, and this is kind of a guess, I would say 80% of those were supportive. The other 20 were very not supportive. As I said, I think one guy was a policeman in, in New York, head of their aviation division. And he said, you should go to jail for six months for a stunt like that. You know, I have to say there's a, there's a bike trail underneath that bridge and a river that's canoed off. And it's a bike trail and a walking trail. I had biked it and walked it many, many times. I knew what was under there and I knew I wasn't endangering anybody. But I also knew it was flat out illegal. And I expected to get a suspension and deserved a suspension. I don't think I deserved this, but, you know, 
you, you, you roll with it. And frankly, at my age, I don't need type ratings in the DC-3 and the SA-227 and the and the load, Lockheed Lodestar and hot air balloons and water and God, what else? I don't know. All I need is a private license with an instrument rating. And the, I don't feel like much like instructing anymore either. So I'd be happy with, with that. You mentioned your age. One of the embarrassing things about being a journalist is I'm put in a position where I need to ask. <laughs> how, am, how old are you? I am 79, and I'll be 80 on Amelia Earhart's birthday next summer, July 24th. Wow. Good for you. <laughs> you, were, you, were starting to, you were starting to say, though, I, I interrupted you there. I've also had innumerable phone calls from old friends, friends in the FAA, friends in the pilot community. You know, I ran the uh, safety program in the Cincinnati area for, well, in the Southern Ohio area for 12 years. And frankly, the FAA and I didn't always get along too well. They considered me a, something of a loose cannon, I think, especially my boss. But I was extremely blessed to be loved by the pilot community. And we put on, I put on at least one, maybe two safety seminars somewhere in the region a week. I flew a lot. Since I had the DC-3 type, I did lots, lots and lots of type ratings and check rides. And frankly, a lot of the FAA inspectors don't like to fly. And I'd always pick up on it because if I had a chance to get out of the office and fly an airplane, you know, I was I was all for it. But my boss and I did go around and around and uh, I wasn't his favorite. <laughs> Do you think that the, you, you have been, how shall I say, you've been critical of the FAA in your writing at times. Do you think that had anything to do with the agency's approach to your particular case or, or not? Well, I do know this. Unbeknownst to most pilots, including me, this business of turning a transponder off two months before I flew under the bridge became a revocable offense. So in order to really get to me, they needed to use that. And as I said, I did not turn off the transponder. It would have been stupid to turn off the transponder. I was below the hills and probably 300 feet above the ground down in that river valley. They wouldn't have seen it if the ADSB had been on. But they they hung their hat on that. And uh, yeah, I have been critical of the FAA. You know, I have a, a friend who at age 60 retired from flying personal jets for people. And he goes back way back to DC-3 freighter days. He's a wonderful mechanic and a wonderful pilot. And he took a job with the FAA at age 60, because if in five, if you stay for five years, you get a retirement. So it's a good deal. And there's a lot of retired airline pilots and corporate pilots who do that. And this guy stayed for four years and he quit. And he said, I couldn't stand the bureaucracy, the snarl, the huge emphasis on computer entries, the lack of personal interaction with, with my pilots and, my, and my, my mechanics. And I understood that. It's more and more, I think, becoming a non-flying bureaucratic organization. You know, back in, back, of course, this is a long time ago, but back in the day, I know that Clarence Wilson, who was the chief at the Cincinnati FISDO, would have called me into his office and said, Martha, 
give me your pilot certificate. And he would have put it in his desk drawer and said, come back and see me in three months. And, you know, that's the way I think to handle people. The machinery of the FAA is unbelievably clogged and I think unnecessarily. Plus, there's the other fact of no historical continuity. All the people who were in the regional offices in the 90s and early 2000s are gone. So this is a whole new group. And I'm sure this guy who, Mr. Khan Esquire, as he always signs his letters, who prosecuted this, has never darkened the cockpit of an airplane. So they know the rules, and uh, that's all that's important. But, you know, it's a hard thing. I mean, I, I don't want any kid or anybody to go flying under a bridge, although you'd be amazed at how many of them confessed to me that they hit. I, I don't want to say, hey, this was really cool. You, you guys should try this. No, 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 no. And I'm sorry it got out in public because it might give that impression. I'm glad that you made that point. It is certainly not all bridges are created equal. And right, that's right. And so there's a whole range of factors that go into setting aside the regulatory questions, the what you spoke to about danger and the actual risk can vary quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, it would be a, a silly thing to do. I don't know what else to tell you. I'm thrilled to be back in the air. I would occasionally go down to the hangar and pat my one <laughs> and cry a little bit on the on the strut. And, uh, you know, but I lived through it and all is well. Well, you've been very generous with your time. And, and I, I'm also coincidentally out of uh, intelligent questions. To, to okay, ask. and I'm out of intelligent answers. <laughs> I thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to get to speak to you. You're, I've, I've heard of you and read your work and known of you for quite some time. And it's, it's a treat to, uh, to actually see you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I thought that was a, a great interview. She was very candid. Kudos to, to her and to Jim. Really enjoyed hearing her story. And and I guess I'm, I'm glad she's back. And I, I hope I hope she's learned from the mistake and is able to move on from it. Well, she did plead the fifth to uh, has she flown under any other bridges before, which I thought was kind of interesting. But it sounds like she did learn her lesson. All right, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash talk and wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we'll see you, David. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.